Be sure to let us know if you've got any ideas, feelings, if you've watched these films, what did you think? Love to hear from you at foiblespodcast.gmail.com, at gmail.com. It'll be in the tag in Shut exciting up. Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> okay, we're back for another movie podcast. Hello there, listeners. Hi, everybody. We have been watching tons of movies. Got some good upcoming series on those. We've been doing a lot of books recently. But we are looking today at a trio of films. So the first film is All That Heaven Allows, directed in 1955 by Douglas Sirk. Uh, and Douglas Sirk was a very big director in the 40s and 50s, in the 50s in particular. That was really the peak of his career. He retired in 1959, fairly young, after his last great film. And he had a very specific and, and marked style, I think, for the time. Just to clarify, he was an American Hollywood director. Well, he was Danish. Yeah, he was Danish originally. And then he, he was born in Germany. And he worked in Germany and did, made a lot of films in Germany uh, at the time. In fact, he was offered a job by Hitler, which he turned down. And his first wife had been a... Uh, uh, she ended up joining the Nazi party and becoming a big, big fat Nazi. And so things did not go well between them. Cirque, uh, they got divorced. And she used the fact that Cirque was unwilling to join the party and was not a Nazi to prevent him from ever seeing his son again. And then he remarried. And he remembered he remarried a Jewish woman. And basically, as the Nazis were on the rise, fairly early in the game in the 1930s, before the very last minute, thank goodness, he left and uh, made his way to England and then ultimately to Hollywood, where he made some pictures. And he made quite a few pictures. Um, it was really the 1950s where I think he hit his stride. Those are the films that are remembered. Those are the films that uh, made a cultural impact and that have really inspired and influenced a number of filmmakers subsequent to that. For example, Todd Haynes, who directed Far From Heaven, which is a remake, essentially, of All That Heaven Allows. And uh, Haynes has made quite a number of films. He made I'm Not There. And in, if you haven't seen that film, it was done in 2007. And I've, I don't know how many different people, but a dozen different people all play Bob Dylan, including Kate Blanchett, <laughs> who is the best Bob Dylan, actually. She does really the best one. We watched that together, but I don't remember it that well. Yeah. <laughs> so Haynes is a, he's a youngish director. He's 60. So he's still in the prime of his career. And he made a film in 2002 called Far From Heaven, which, as I said, was a remake. Haynes is a out-queer man, out-gay man. He brings that aesthetic to his work, but he's still, he's very mainstream, and yet at the same time, he takes a lot of risks with form, uh, in particular, like with this Bob Dylan film. He did a, a film called Safe quite a while ago with Julianne Moore starred in that one, as well as in Far From Heaven. And in Safe, it's basically a oblique reference to the AIDS, the growing AIDS crisis, or the AIDS, actually by the time SAFE was made, AIDS was well known and well publicized as, as an issue, but it was still not being handled 
the way it should have been handled in terms of the seriousness of it. And he made a film about that, but it was an oblique reference. It wasn't uh, hitting the nail on the head where a woman has this mysterious illness. And basically it's like she's allergic to everything, like she's allergic to the world. Hmm. And um, anyway, it's a very interesting film about someone, someone's difficult, intransient kind of illness that, that really challenges and tests everybody. But it's not really standard kind of storytelling format. You have to watch it to really see what I'm talking about. But his, his films do tend to be challenging on that level. You're going to work with Todd Haynes. For example, the, the film I had you watch called Karen Carpenter, uh, mm. The Superstar, The Karen Carpenter Story, which is one that I think it's his first film or second film. And it's an entire biography of Karen Carpenter from her rise to fame to her death told using Barbie dolls. And, well, what did you think of it? Uh, I thought it was fantastic, like the... Barbie dolls made it sort of haunting and, and creepy in a certain way, but also, it yeah, it felt very unusual and just the biographical detail wasn't super nuanced or anything, but it kind of didn't need to be. Well, it was emotionally gripping for a film that was told by just Barbie dolls being moved across the screen and dressed and things. And the film is really about Karen Carpenter, but also, again, as Todd Haynes will do, he reaches out into the uh, sociopolitical realm and he pulls in a larger context, which is the issue of bulimia and anorexia, and which is what Karen Carpenter died from. And she starved herself to death pretty much, which is heartbreaking on an individual level. But he takes this beautiful, talented woman and her struggle with that and societies at that time ignoring, not understanding, you know, total disregard for this I'll call it a disease that, mm-hmm. that people are suffering, mostly women, but men too. And he takes it and he and he's trying to illustrate it in, within the context of this story told with Barbie dolls. And of course, the Barbie doll thing is very pointed because Barbie right. dolls both create and perpetuate this unrealistic body image. I, I read something, whether this is true or not, but somebody did some kind of, I don't think a study is quite... It's a little bit too grandiose, but they, they did the calculations and they fit, they said, well, if a woman, a real woman, had the proportions of Barbie, she wouldn't be able to stand up because she'd be so top-heavy. <laughs> right. Anyway, it was a very pointed use of the Barbie doll. I don't know if you can get it anywhere. It's packed, jam-packed with Carpenter's music. And Richard Carpenter, who does not come off very well in the film, did not permit the, could use the music. So since the rights weren't granted. But... You know, they're kind of bootlegs around, I suppose. I, I don't know. I don't know where it is, but we thought we'd tell you about it because it is, and it's one of his earliest films. So it's not real subtle in, in terms of the points it's making. It's very, very clear and, and direct on that. And so that is a bit of a nail, a uh, hammer on the nail uh, deal. But it's really fascinating and challenging too because of what the way he's presenting it. It does a great job of pre- presenting sort of the claustrophobia of the family life and the sort of all-American, you know, really wholesome family image and, and the way that that put a lot of pressure on her as this star. And although Richard Carpenter doesn't come off as a particularly sympathetic brother, you also do get to see hit the pressure on him as a gay man uh, and the, the way the family, there's no, there was no space for him either to be who he was. I can see why he doesn't like to see himself represented that way, but it's not. It, yeah, it doesn't it's not that bad. A villain or anything. No, no, it, he's just impatient. 
he doesn't get it, and he's very driven by his career. And he, and again, just like everybody, he doesn't understand. It's like snap out of it, just eat something, right? You know. Uh, so that's Todd Haynes. So he did the remake of Far From Heaven of All That Heaven Allows. We will go back. We will start at the beginning and talk through the movies. I just uh, am introducing the directors pretty much in the order I think of them because this is the order we watch the movies in. But anyway, the last remake, and actually probably at the end because it is the one stylistically the furthest from its source material, is uh, a film called Ali, Fear Eats the Soul. Awesome title. I know, awesome title. And very, very much a Fassbender title. Rainer Werner Fassbender was a German director. Uh, The film Ali, uh, Fear Eats the Soul, was produced in 1974. So it was at the height of the 70s when everything was being ripped apart, really in pretty much every country, and in Germany as well as here. So, you know, you had all kinds of uh, sexual revolution, female liberation, gay rights uh, um, liberation, drugs were being utilized a great deal more than they had been and more openly. Just a lot of stuff going on around that. And Fassbinder, um, he didn't live very long. Um, D- Douglas Sirk had a pretty long life, even though he retired kind of early. Uh, Fassbinder only lived from 1945 to 1982. So this film was kind of right at the peak of his productivity. Fassbinder made 44 films in an 18-year career, which is... That's incredible. That's amazingly prolific, because he not only made them, he had to, I I would assume he had to get financing for them. He wrote a lot of them. He acted in a lot of them. So, you know, he was just a maniac, I think. (laughs) And from what I read about him, it sounds like he was just generally kind of a maniac kind of person. He's one of those people who just burns out really fast. You know, he reminds me of Klaus Kinski. Hmm. who's an actor, if you haven't heard of him, who starred in a number of Werner Herzog movies. He was just apparently an absolute maniac. I mean, just would run into walls on purpose. And just, just he was just like wow. total craziness. Somebody who just was unfettered and un, just couldn't regulate his energy, I guess. He just was super intense. So I, Fassbinder was kind of like that. He had numerous relationships with both men and women. He uh, took a lot of drugs. In fact, he died of a drug overdose. So, you know, right there. He was only 37 when he passed. God, can you imagine how many movies he would have made if I he know. kept going? <laughs> That's amazing. That's so young. <laughs> I know, it really is. Um, so anyway, he made uh, Ali uh, Fear Eats the Soul, which is a remake of that. He made as I said, 44 other films, so you can't even get into them. Uh, some of them were, were really good, and some were, I think, just some of the most boring stuff I've ever seen. Intense, turgid disquisitions about whatever the people were talking about just would go on and on. One of those, which comes up a lot, I think the, the best thing about it is the title. The title is awesome, and the rest of the film is, I couldn't even get through it, it was so dull. It's The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. Great title. Sounds cool. Yeah, yeah, it sounds really cool. And and the idea is great. It's about this actress. And uh, she's kind of a famous actress. And I don't know, people come and they talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very, very dull. But uh, the Ali Fear Eats the Soul is, I think, one of his best films. And I really liked it a lot. That was very interesting. But I guess we should wind back and talk about Cirque again. I gave you a little bit about his biography. I don't know exactly why he decided to retire in 1959 maybe he just got sick of the filmmaking atmosphere and working in a Hollywood studio but he was known for making quote-unquote women's films 
So it's sort of the same way that like Jane Austen originally was kind of poo-pooed and put at second tier because she wrote about women's issues, women's books. It's the same thing with, with Cirque. And certainly people of when I was young, so boomer, age group, whatever, sort of when the roots of the hipsterism, hmm. where we would like joke watch Douglas Cirque and laugh at Douglas Cirque and, and the, because his films were extremely visually lush with bright technicolor, which at the time I was coming up, you know, when the time that I was watching this was like in the 80s, that was just so it's old. Kind of corny. Oh, yeah. toe corny as anything. And the clothes and, oh, and the acting. Yeah, because, the melodrama. Yes, because the acting was more of an old style acting. Uh, today, which you, you go, okay, that's the old style and that's good of that style. Versus just going, oh, that's so, cor-, you know, the way they're acting is so corny and so overblown and, and all this emotion. And then the music was very powerful and swelling and all of that stuff would be stuff that we would just joke watch and laugh at and so now I watch it again and I'm like well it's pretty good (laughs) (laughs) I liked it too yeah yeah quite a bit and you don't have that you're not in that reactionary period so you know you're able to take it fresh I mean we are in the age of irony but yeah at least this one (laughs) all that heaven allows is not really his best film I don't think in my opinion his best film I think is imitation of life Mm -hmm. which is his last film 1959 and again what Cirque Interestingly, he supposedly only was interested in women's issues because it was about relationships and it was about home and parenting and all this stuff. But at the same time, he always brought in, like I was saying that Todd Haynes did, the larger socio-political issues of the day. And and he was very progressive. He was liberal, so he was not anti-gay. He was not worried about miscegenation. He was not worried about... He believed in freedom and he believed in equality and that kind of stuff. And it comes through in his in his films a lot, which is interesting because a lot of people got slammed by the McCarthy hearing, by HUAC. Uh, and if you don't know about the McCarthy hearings and the, the communist red scare of the 40s and 50s, you should look that up because it's a nightmare. Uh, and a lot of filmmakers got pulled into that because of the content of their films. So he didn't. I don't know why. Maybe because he had escaped from Germany. I don't know what the what the issue is, but he managed to escape getting uh, blacklisted by the committee. So in All That Heaven Allows, he's really attacking the class system and, and also ageism. We've got a, a situation where a woman is widowed. She had a much older husband. She's played by Jane Wyman, who was actually Ronald Reagan's first wife, if you're interested. Anyway, Jane Wyman, uh, who's still, I mean, I think when you make the film, she's like maybe 40. Yeah, not that old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's not that old. I, I don't know if she's supposed to be playing older or what. And she and, and the younger man is Rock Hudson. So I think the age difference between them is like six years or something. It's nothing. Yeah. Yeah, but they make it sound like it's a generation of difference. You know, like she's 20 years older than he is. But even then, there's not there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm, what I'm saying is, is they're making it seem like, oh my God, he's so much younger. And then also he's a working class guy. He actually owns a business, but it's a landscaping, a gardening business. So he plants trees and he does work with his hands. He wears flannels. Yeah, yeah. 
And she was married to a top-level lawyer. So I think from the house and everything, you can say she's kind of upper middle class or lower upper class. Uh, and she's got a couple of grown children who are, you know, like in college and getting married and having careers. So they've moved out of the house, so she's alone. And they basically, oh, by the way, I'm sorry, we didn't say this at the top, but we probably will spoil a number of different points in the plot. And even maybe spoil the very ending. So just want to warn you, we recommend you watch all of these movies because they're all good. So I'm going to go back into describing the plot now to give it, give you the, the details here. So anyway, she's really lonely. And Rock Hudson, which is so ironic because Rock Hudson was gay. That's That seems to be is an that interesting? underlying theme to all three of these movies. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know that that's why Cirque cast him right or anything at all rock hudson was a hunk and he was a he was you know a dreamboat and they fought very hard to to protect his identity so that he wouldn't uh, lose his career but it's just ironic so rock hudson is the working man uh, big brawny shoulders and out there digging away and uh, she ends up speaking with him and they and they end up getting to know each other and then they hang out a little bit. He, he takes her to meet his friends who are all like salt of the earth people having a good time. Oh, yeah. Drinking wine, dancing on the table. Singing. Bohemian. All, yeah. yeah. Artists. And also he, they're artists. Right. Yeah. So, and yes, they meet intellectually and stuff. Yeah, and artistically. So there's this this whole thing about art and, and, and I think it goes to the soul and to the, to, you know, uh, something really, really basic and deep in the soul that, that connects them. Yeah, it's supposed to be like, these are two people that really see each other despite everything. Right, right, exactly. And at the time, that kind of class gap was huge. Also, doing something where it challenged the racial mores. Right. I mean, given that the uh, the loving uh, Supreme Court case had not, had not been handed down yet, not until the 60s, it was still illegal for white people and non-white people particularly black people, to be in a, a marital relationship or even have sex at all. Not that it didn't happen, but it was actually illegal. And there was no way that, that it would have been able to play in the South at all. So at this point, it still hadn't broken down quite enough. It's coming, coming soon, but it hadn't broken down enough. So is Rock Hudson, because he's, I mean, he's like darker in sort of like his hair's dark and yeah. his complexion's a little bit darker. Is that maybe subtext that he's, I don't know, Italian? It or could some, be. Some sort of like vaguely regarded as inferior, <laughs> yeah. inferior background. immigrant group. I don't yeah. know. I, I, what was his name in the... No, his name is Ron Kirby. So it would have been very subtextual. Everything you just described will definitely be very important when it comes to the next movie that we'll talk about, which is... Right, where the love interest is a black man. So anyway, Rock Hudson comes in. So basically, they, they make it class. That was a conflict, and it was an issue, and it could be looked down upon, and you could get ousted from your social circle for stepping out of your class, because we say we're a classless society, but we're not. Right. Not It's not as intense as other places, but it's still definitely there. But they didn't really go for, at this time, anything that was really controversial. I mean, that would really kick up a, a stink. Right. So it was a very commercial film, nonetheless. But, you know, he, he did he did do his best with it. Anyway, uh, the, the kids want her to marry this uh, friend of her, of her dead husband, uh, who is his law partner or something. And he's, again, he's like 20 years older than her. And she wants to go with this young, hot guy who's all into her. And that causes a family rift. And one of the things that... 
<laughs> that the kids do is like she ends up giving up her boyfriend because her adult children don't like it and 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 his, her daughter won't get to marry the hoity-toity boy she wants if her mother is is going around with this low class who's in any so way stupid I, it's really really stupid and it's kind of hard i mean you really you kind of really have to put a lot on the shelf to watch it and have sympathy and then the, the thing is is what sir he, he puts the icing on the cake and the kids for christmas because now she doesn't have a boyfriend anymore and she's all alone in the house they bring her a tv a tv set and it of course now remember this is 1955 so most people didn't have TVs. There was not, you know, it was it was growing. It was getting to be huge. But, it, you know, usually like maybe in an apartment house in a working class group, one person would have a TV and everybody in the neighborhood would come to your house and watch TV. Or you'd stand in front of the window of the TV store and watch TV in the window of the TV store. So it was that was a luxury gift. But it was also a way of saying, well, you can just, sit at home and not have a sex life and not do anything yeah this is this is your company now here yeah. you go <laughs> yeah here here you go this is your lover and and Cirque uses a lot of uh, visuals to portray the inner life of this woman and her her feelings because she really doesn't ever hardly ever at all until the end actually say how she feels and and Wyman plays it pretty decently low-key. I mean, she keeps it at the subtextual level. She's not getting all emotional like they did in the old movies, and she's not... Throwing herself down and weeping or... Yeah, exactly, exactly. So Cirque uses his visual um, style to show how she's feeling. You you, you had some uh, really good observations about that. Uh, yeah, I, I found that quite striking because I just wouldn't necessarily have expected that level of, like... I don't know, artistry and the shots and shadow play and stuff. But there's like a scene where she's fighting with her son um, over the boyfriend at some point. And I think the son's like, you're, you know, you're disgracing us and stuff. And there's all these shots of uh, like the metal grate in the window, I think, casting this like shadow over her face. And she's split in half by the like shadow and light and a lot of different shots like that that I, I thought were really evocative and really artful. Yeah, exactly. Show that, and then there are scenes where she's with her lover because eventually they become lovers, uh, subtly speaking, uh, at, at his rustic cabin that he wanted to build, you know, to redo for them to live in. And yes, there's this she takes her shoes off. Yes, that's how you know. Yeah, exactly. And there's a giant window, uh, and then you know, and then they would be backlit by the beautiful setting sun behind them, and so the, you know, again showing the. The, um, the awakening in her because they also hint very, uh, you know, if you know what you're looking for, that her husband was not particularly sexually fulfilling. She didn't really get a chance to really experience her sexuality fully. And she does with this younger man. So it's very good. And it was just hugely influential and popular, even though it you know, was looked down on by critics for a long time. Now it's now Douglas Sirk is really taking his place in the pantheon of directors and so forth. Those kids, though, man, you just you want to smack so them in la- the head. Ha- them. Well, that's why you turned out so well, because I did not let you get away with shit like that. I mean, not that you would have pulled that kind of thing. Yeah. But the thing is, is they must have been spoiled and indulged, and she must have given over some of her uh, authority or agency to them when they were too young. Yeah. And they became brats. Yeah. 
And then they acted like brats when they grew up. Yeah, see our, see our episode on Mildred Pierce when, <laughs> uh, about bad p- parenting that is too permissive also being bad parenting. <laughs> Uh, one of our one of our listeners wrote in said that no no Mildred Pierce is a martyr she's not a bad parent <laughs> so they disagreed with that but um, anyway another we mentioned these two uh, other directors we're going to talk about their remakes but Cirque also just influenced a lot of filmmakers and one in particular is uh, Pedro Almodovar 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 yeah Almodovar thank you. Oh, I can see that. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, so Moldovar is a Spanish director. If you've, He's very famous. I think most people would have heard of him, but I'll... Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, I think, is his most famous title. Is it? Is the most famous one? So. Yeah, it's one of the earliest ones, too. He's had a really long career. He's like 71 years old now, mm. which, you know, it just seems like time flies. And um, he is, again, he's a queer film director, which is interesting mm-hmm. that this style and this film is so, uh, of, of Cirque's filmmaking is so resonant with, uh, with queer, queer directors. directors. Yeah, yeah, especially male queer directors. Totally. Yeah, definitely. So he's made, like, he's, uh, he's made Women on the Virgin Nurse Breakdown, which you saw recently, right? We watched what it together, together recently. We? we determined that it's not one of his best, but it, I think it is, I don't know, it's just the most widely available, recognizable title. Um, yeah. But it's also got that technicolor sort of color palette and things like that. Yeah, and he um, he's done a lot of, of films. His most recent one was in 2019, which is Pain and Glory. And he did one called Julieta, which was really a lovely film. He's done a lot. I thought one of his most fascinating films was The Skin I Live In. Mm. Have you? I, I've seen it a long time ago. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah with uh, uh, Antonio Banderas. Yeah, I don't remember it too well. but Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's a plastic surgeon. Yes. In that one, yeah. Yeah. So he's he's done a lot. All about my mother. Just all kinds of all kinds of films throughout. But that palette, that Technicolor primary color, and also the the female point of view. Almost almost all of his films are sympathetic to and come from the female's point of view. Penelope Cruz is one of his. Uh, muses as well he's a number of them of people he's used over and over again and it really shows the oppression often that women experience not all of his films obviously but yeah very interesting so i'd say he's the main one i can think of although i'm sure a lot of other people were so then uh then we watched and so then uh todd haynes did his remake far from heaven in 2002 and instead of it being Jane Wyman and Rock Hudson, it stars Julianne Moore and Dennis Haysbert. And Dennis Haysbert, in case he's not a super famous actor, but um, he's a very tall, handsome black man. And he plays the working class guy that uh, Julianne Moore's character ends up connecting with and falling in love with. Also a gardener, I think. And in this case, instead of her being a widow, she's married to Dennis Quaid. Who just so happens to work in a t- television company that makes televisions. Right, right, exactly. Continuing that theme. And he's gay. And uh, so he's a in the closet, as far as he can possibly be a gay man, who's gotten to the point where he, he, he's overwhelmed with who he is, and he needs to be who he is. And it's, a, it's really a very interesting and complex film, because it brings together all that heaven allows, and then the issues of imitation of life. And in imitation of life... Cirque dealt with parallel lives of two women, a, a black woman who's the maid and the white woman who's in, in imitation of life an actress. And they are kind of bonded together, you know, economically, 
they you know they actually do care about each other but they live in different classes and but you do get a full picture of the challenges of the uh, Louise Beavers is the actress who plays the, the black character the challenges of her life and the things that are confronting her and her daughter so it, it does it very much brings out the issues of racism in a way that could be presented on screen at the time and so it's kind of like taking both of those mm, elements and bring them, them together. together yeah yeah I, I thought it was a very interesting beautiful film he takes the color palette and refines it it's set in the same hyper 50s suburban style and all the costumes and the set pieces and stuff. But yeah, it's more elegant for yeah. sure. Yeah, I mean, and certainly Cirque is elegant, but it's like even to our eye, it's like taken, it's almost like a retro elegance that is really pleasing to our modern eye. And he also uses the colors in the way Cirque would use his visual style. Haynes used his, his visual style. Like, for example, when she, uh, Julianne Moore's character, is hanging out with her girlfriends, uh, they're all wearing the same shades of same colors. They're all wearing like shades of harmonic uh, greens or harmonic oranges or whatever. But then when she's beginning to step out and trying to assert herself as a separate individual, she's wearing something like, she's wearing red and everybody else is wearing blue. So he uses that, again, to reflect kind of where she is within herself and also how society is viewing her as being an outsider or not. So essentially she meets the black guy who is the son of her old gardener and he's become her new gardener, but he's actually a business graduate and he's got a degree and is probably, you know, uh, hoping and uh, expecting to build more for his life than just this small plant shop, as well as growing his own plants and so forth. And so he comes and, you know, he's just like a dreamboat, you know, like Rock Hudson. Uh, he's, he's gentle. He's really intelligent in a very sensitive and intuitive way into art yeah yeah he's and he really understands art again got the art thing and she has an intuitive appreciation of art but she isn't trained in it and so it's very interesting because there is a scene where they there's an art show a modern art show going on in their town that she helped to put on and she goes and he's there with his daughter and they're the only black people in the entire place and so she's like friendly and talking to him. And of course you can see there's an attraction, but they're not doing anything untoward. They're really talking about the art and they're really connecting. And I think that's the thing uh, because he really, uh, he really understands the essence and the meaning of expressionistic art. And he's basically explains it to her in a way that it like resonates and everybody is like staring. These movies are definitely all of them have to do with social pressure. And mm. it's it's very much the case that for me, for sure, I'd say like, I would want to poo-poo that if I were in one of these scenarios. But it really is, it's suffocating and we're such social creatures. It's just, it would be so, so hard to go against those mores and like transcend the isolation that you endure and the... Um, and the hatred. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it depends how on how you're raised too, because you're probably more or less susceptible or have more or less of a challenge with that. Well, that isn't fair to say just for women because men are too. Uh, in, in certain, especially if you're in certain classes, you can have more pressure because they have to keep people in line in order to keep what they have. You know what I mean? Totally. There's less, less ability to, to, to permit and allow individualism and that kind of thing. So anyway, the, the, you, you can just see that pressure building there. 
Um, so then they, they do have this, this relationship. At the same time, there's the parallel line of her marriage splintering apart because her husband is, is now going out and having uh, affairs or sexual encounters. And then he finally meets someone that he actually falls in love with, a man, and he just can't do it anymore. But at the same time, he wants her to keep up the pretense. He wants her to be, become his beard. And when she doesn't do that, he becomes kind of vicious. Yeah, it's um, it's a complex character more it than is. you'd expect because he's in turns like he's oppressed. You sympathize with anybody who has to hide their identity like that and who suffers for it. But then, yeah, he's also kind of a tyrant in the household. And he's a total misogynist. That's the stereotypical white man sure. part of him. the the thing that he's been trained and acculturated into that these things are his right and his due, and and it's a huge dissonance to suddenly have his wife who is meant to be his helpmeet. And you see this uh, fore- foreshadowed in, there's a, there's a picture of an ad for their TV sales where there's a TV and he's like standing or sitting up above and then she's, yeah, she, that's right, she's sitting at the floor at his feet. So she's moving out of her place to do that. And then Raymond Deegan is the name of Dennis Habert's character. So Raymond, he's stepping out of his place by even having a friendship with a white woman, much less a romance. Right. You know, and then she's stepping out of her place by uh, standing up to her husband and or deciding she wants to have a romance with someone who's not of her race. And one of the things about this film is that they have like an emotional, spiritual romance, but they don't actually consummate that. Mm. They never like meet up or go anywhere. They don't go to the woods like they do in Far right. From Heaven. But they do have some really nice exchanges. And, and Haynes does bring a more modern sensibility into it. For example, uh, and, it, and this kind of shows the depths of her sympathy and her intuition and also her lack of, I mean, you know, she's raised in a white world. She just doesn't have any real context for anything. And she says to him at the museum, what is it like being the only one? because he's the only black person in the sea of white. And so later he ends up taking her to a cafe bar that's a black establishment and she's the only one. And he says, well, now you know what it's like to you know be the only one. And he meant that in a friendly way, but inviting her into his world and kind of seeing what, both what it's like emotionally to try to be maneuvering out in the world as himself, but also here's a, here's a group of my people. Here are my friends. Here's the people I hang out with. Which is, you know, I thought that was pretty sweet. I think one of the extra interesting things about this movie to me is that it actually feels much less, maybe radical is not the right word, but like less toothless than all that heaven allows. In the sense that uh, looking back, it's a very detailed, complex um, picture and it, it details a lot of the issues of the time and everything. But then looking forward, sort of, her personal solution, since it deals with racism so explicitly, is to to join the ACLU, NAACP, and uh, that's sort of it. And so, and it it just it feels very liberal to me in the sense of like the the modern mm-hmm. liberal political ideology. And so, it is much less satisfying on a political and emotional level. I mean, I would just say for that, the end leaves it very open ended, and it seems like she's probably moving into being more active generally uh in her in life but we don't know what that is also we'll say what else could she do yeah i mean what education did she have i mean that's the and that is really kind of going back to the entrapment of the role and of the 
status that she has in society so yeah and that's why it's hard for me to articulate this because i don't really mean it in the sense that i i wanted a movie where the character is just suddenly yeah. like going out guns blazing or, right, I don't right. know, like Shoot bombing it. a building yeah or, uh, it's not <laughs> it, yeah, it's sort of but i think i think it shows this the, the thing that we'd say about anybody not about her but about the way what they call the patriarchy or the, the establishment or the system or whatever you want to call it is structured in that everybody whether you're in a privileged position or you're not in a privileged position is held in place by the structure and figuring out how to get out of it or how to change it is extremely difficult even for somebody who has some you know has some education or she's just like barely beginning to have her consciousness raised and she doesn't seem to have it about women either about her own role. So when you don't feel like you're an empowered agent of change or even an agent in your own life, she's just started that by uh, dumping her husband, then to help others, you know, what power do you have? So it's kind of just, I think it's kind of showing how you're just kind of trapped in this web and you're trying to figure out which string to pull. Yeah. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. Yeah. And I think you said maybe the reason that... Uh, that you might sort of agree with my feeling is that all that heaven allows is a much tighter, tighter movie. Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of like if if you um, took a, a serial killer board and put the red strings on it, uh, far from heaven would have strings crossing and pictures of a dozen people and they're all like kind of inter interconnected. And if you take all that heaven allows, you pretty much have her and him and a string and then her kids and a string down and her friends kind of all the same string you got like three or four strings so i think the simplicity of the and if you consider those strings emotional lines you're not splintered you're very much very focused and so it allows for a, a more buildup and pressure of emotion so yeah I, I think all that heaven allows is more emotional whereas Far From Heaven is kind of more like a an artistic appreciation. I think it's good and it's well worth watching. And it's like there isn't any emotion in it. The performances by Julianne Moore, uh, Dennis Habert, and Dennis Quaid are beautiful. But especially Moore and, and Haysbert, when they do their scenes together, and the longing and the way they can touch intuitively and sensitively in each other's hearts is really beautiful. Especially Julianne Moore, I have to say, uh, because she really, she really opened up some vulnerability. At the same time, I'm going to have to say one of the through lines of this for me is what shitty parents. Yeah, she's a terrible. Mother. She's a terrible mother, and her husband's a terrible dad. Now they, they, they and that was obviously very conscious because Dennis Habert, he's a, a widower, and he's got his daughter, and he's the one who gives up this potential love because of the racist backlash to protect his daughter because she's getting bullied at school and things. Yeah, pretty badly bullied too. So he's protecting her. Whereas Julie Amber, she doesn't give a thought about her. She lives in the car when she runs to the train station and whenever they want, she's oh, don't bother your dad, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, I don't think they have, she has a single interaction or maybe one interaction with either of her two ch children where she's not like, oh, later, or like, oh, put that away, or oh, go, oh, nurse, can you take that? Oh, oh, you're so silly, you don't know? even, don't, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> she's a terrible parent, which I think is really funny 
and it's fine because I mean these people don't have to be perfect. Yeah, it's a good thing that they're not. In fact, maybe that's my one criticism here is that he's so careful with the black characters that Dennis Haber he's, he's not he, real. He's an angel. Yeah, he's an he's an absolute okay, but he's he's the only angel. Yeah. So it's it's like it doesn't give him as an actor or as a character a flaw or if not a, fullness, a flaw, yeah. a foible. So it's missing that, you know. So it does make him less dimensional. Yeah. Same thing with uh, Viola Davis, who's it's an early role for her. She plays the maid. Mm, yeah. And she's kind of always she's doing a great job. Actually, I think it's kind of sweet though. Maybe that's just a white perspective, but anyway. She is protective of this woman. She sees her crashing down, and she sees her being interested in this guy. And it didn't look like she has a problem with it, but she's kind of like thinking, oh, girl, you don't know what you're getting into. Yeah. You do not know the reality of things. Right. And so you can see that. But again, Viola Davis is like, she's just perfect. Totally. She's there to... To make everything that needs to happen, happen. And, and maybe he did that in order to show that, again, this different in class slash race where whoever is at the bottom end, they're doing all the work. Yeah. You know, they're taking care of business, uh, so to speak. So anyway, I, I would criticize that. I think that that's, I think that's a, a lack in the film. You mentioned a scene, uh, the scene where he takes her to the bar and how reminiscent that is of... Ali Fury, it's the soul, and so it really has tons and tons of callbacks to both movies yeah, in it. It really does. He we, he he weaves them in quite a bit. But in uh, Ali Fury, it's the soul, made in 1974 um, by uh, Rainer Werner uh, Fassbinder. That film is, I keep wanting to say it's Brechtian. It's not really in 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 that it doesn't break the fourth wall or anything like that. But it is got a grittiness and a reality. It is not lush visually it is dank and i don't maybe that was very post-war germany yeah you know still because uh, this would have been west germany so yeah we're not looking at the eastern Bloc or anything but it's dank the clothes are so ugly it's almost like he did that on purpose yeah because sure. i don't think this i don't remember the 70s being that ugly maybe it was in germany i don't know <laughs> but oh my god the clothes are ugly the everything is just unappealing in, in visually speaking, yet he uses the visuals. He take he does a Fassbinderian twist on the Cirque visuals. In this case, Fassbinder he combines age, class, and race right. in the conflict. So he goes for it. He's not going to hold back. You know, he kind of reminds me of Lars von Trier in a way. Oh, I think if he could have gotten away with the shit that Lars von Trier did later, all the nudity and all the everything, I think Fassbender totally would have go for it. <laughs> I think he's got that kind of, you know, like wants to tear raw meat with his teeth kind of filmmaking. You know what I'm saying? And this film goes back to the All That Heaven Allows formulation. String, I guess. string formula, if you will. Uh, we're back to really uh, focused. He, he brings in all of these uh, aspects in this person. And so uh, leads are uh, Brigitte Mira and El Hedi Ben Salim. And they are a uh, German woman of a certain age. Uh, and uh, she's a, a widow a widow, and has been a widow for a little while. She's got three grown children. So again, we see the mirror. And he is a immigrant worker from Morocco. And so basically he's working class 
and not even a business owner working class, and he's uh, non-white, and he's a um, foreigner, Im- immigrant, immigrant, yeah. and he's 25 years younger than she is. Yeah, so there's the actual age gap here. Yeah. <laughs> so he has the guts to actually show show it, rather than Jane Wyman, who's still gorgeous and youthful and barely into middle age against somebody who's like six years younger than she is so visually you know and then in the other one they didn't worry about age and then this one where she's you know and she's not prettified is this not like taking michelle pfeiffer at 60 right or 55 this is a dumpy non-made up non-cosmetically enhanced working class well she's also working class she's a maid she's working class she's a cleaner yeah Yeah. but he but she's a cleaner and she's german so i think therein lays the class difference yeah she's socially established she's a citizen yeah so forth exactly yeah so she's not upper class but she she's she is a worker um and so so there she is and then there's this and he's fairly handsome i think i can't believe that he's 25 years younger than her because he looks a lot older than than he probably is he, I mean, I think he's, I think he's gorgeous, but mm-hmm. also it does seem like he was quite a drinker and a smoker, and yeah. that's very lined. His yeah. face, yeah, his face is very lined, uh, but he definitely looks younger than she does. Yeah, and um, so Salim was uh, Fassbender's uh, um, lover, and I guess pretty much partner for a while. Um, and Salim did come from Morocco in, in reality. And so he and Fassbender were, were a couple while this film was being made. And it's very interesting because even Salim doesn't really seem to be much of an actor. Brigitte, Mira, she's, you can see more like she's acting. Not, maybe not the greatest actor, but she does a decent, a decent role. And a lot of the people in it, and this was standard for Fassbender, were not actors. Very so it's very stylized, and it opens pretty much with her because it's raining going into an Arab bar. Well, you think it was an Arab owner that the woman who owned it was Arab. Okay, I'll, I'll go with that because she made couscous. Yeah, so, exactly. So she owned it, and then most of the people there were Arabs, except there are a few women who are hanging on the arms of a couple guys who are clearly German, and that was it. And so she, this woman, walks in there like, and on kind of on a dare, he goes over and asks her to dance. And then they just start talking, and then they he just sleeps with her, and so there's not like a real build there. But it's Fassbinder is not. I know you, you don't totally agree with me on this, so I'll just say my my side of it. And then, I don't see that he's working much at a psychological level, other than to illustrate maybe the psychology of people. But the actors and the characters themselves are not delving into psychology and into the subtext, and then building underneath a through line it basically they do this then they do this then they do this and then this happens and then this happens and it all makes sense in terms of yeah that could happen somebody could do that but i you know i don't feel that the emotion is pulled through as a totality as a single as a unison the way i do in the other two films i'm not saying that that's bad that's his style that's how he's doing it and it's okay but, you know, it's just like they get up, they talk, they go up to room. Okay, let's sleep together. Okay, why don't you live with me? You know, this kind of thing. Because I think Fassbinder's, the axe he's grinding is the racism of society, is the, um, the assumption that an age gap where the woman is older is not 
going to work, that it is against reality. And he really, really spends a lot of time focusing on the prejudices about what these people are and, and who they are in terms of, oh, they're dirty, they don't wash. The German people, the German white people, spouting racism. Propaganda. Propaganda, yeah. exactly. Exactly. And this film does take place after the Munich Olympics. I don't know the details of it, I'm sorry, but it, it, it was an Arab group, not the athletes, but an Arab group came in and kidnapped and killed some Israeli athletes. It was very terrible. And so then as this happened here, the citizenry of Germany goes, we hate Arabs. And so then all the, and he even says in the movie, uh, I was okay, I was fine, I was getting along fine until, you know, then Munich happened. And now all the propaganda is going out. So really that's kind of, I think, where he is. I felt there was, I'm not saying there wasn't any feeling and I wasn't saying I didn't feel any sympathy for anybody. Anyway, the plot really just goes along very simply like heaven allows. Yeah, I kind of see it in three parts where mm-hmm. the first yeah. part is they get together Second part being they get married and then all of a sudden there's all this fallout where her her children blow up at her and the guy at the store she goes to won't sell to either of them. And and then the third part being the part where actually those social tensions kind of ease or like people get used to it. Her children come back because they want something from her. The shopkeeper's like, oh, actually I want her business so I can deal. But then she and her husband at least, they start having difficulties. Internal difficulties, yeah. Um, and so I think that that's maybe the most interesting part to me is that in the other two movies, this the central couple or the central pair they meet on such a spiritual level and that carries through the whole movie and it's always the external that really bring the difficulties. Whereas this one then kind of confronts the... There's no happily ever after. Yeah, the difficulty of an actual relationship and how there are, there will be ups and downs. And I think part of your issue with the psychology of it is that, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't go very... It doesn't seem like a very smooth change or it doesn't make a yeah, lot it of does, sense. It doesn't develop in any way. It's just suddenly there. Just like poof, it's there. It doesn't actually develop. They're all lovey-dovey one second. The next second, they're completely at odds. There's not. There's no connective tissue between. It's fine. I, I think you're right. It's like three acts. And I liked it. I mean, I thought Fassbender, he's got kind of a romantic streak too. And it ends with them together, them loving each other, at the same time acknowledging that they have to work, that a relationship requires work and compromise on both their parts. I thought that that was actually the most realistic of all the endings. Just the reality. It's funny because the, the film has the same kind of, all the characters. There's nobody beautiful. And I know you think he's gorgeous, which, I mean, he's, you know. Sort but not, of, not in like a other world yeah, really yeah. kind of way. I mean, yeah, in, in, in for the film he is. Yeah. But there's nobody in the film that's really that great looking. Yeah, I thought like, that was kind of intriguing about they're, it. They're all, they're all hyper-normal looking people. Yeah. You know, so it's really interesting because the look of the people and the look of the film and the clothes and everything are sort of hyper real in terms of reality having flaws. And so are the main characters. And then so is the story itself that ends sweetly, but in a hyper real sweetness in that you know, this is not Hollywood or fairy tale ending by any means. <laughs> except for the except for the part that you laughed at where, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
where they they dance together and they have their cheeks pressed together and they're like, oh yeah, let's let we'll get through this. And then he immediately just falls to the ground, groaning with like a stomach ulcer or something. Yeah, yeah he he got a stomach ulcer. Well, that's why I laughed because it there was nothing. I mean, usually there would be like something in between. He'd yeah. show him like maybe like puking in the toilet or or you'd see off to the side. He'd like, oh no, I'm not. My stomach doesn't feel that good. Right. Or there'd be something. Some that, in, that, earlier indication. But they're 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 just there, and all of a sudden he screams and falls to the floor. It was hilarious. <laughs> and then they take him to the hospital and they say, oh, he has a a stress ulcer and. Oh, yeah, he'll get better, but he'll be back in six months because he'll have another ulcer. You know, and she's just real supportive and holds his hand and says, I'll do whatever it takes to help you get through this, and you're not coming back with another ulcer, whatever. It's so funny because now that we know that ulcers are not caused by stress. Right. <laughs> you know, huh, where's the bacteria coming from that's causing all these ulcers, you know, these people? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I forgot about that. I did. I laughed really hard at that. I find Fassbender, when his things are really good, there's always something in it that makes me laugh. There's one called, I think, Fox and His Friends that I saw one time. And some guy gets murdered, and I was, like, laughing my ass off. It was so funny. I don't know. It wasn't meant to... I don't think it was meant to be funny. But it's just the style. I don't know. But, I mean, I like it. And I'm not laughing ironically. But the thing is evoking laughter from me. Kind of an absurdity. Yeah. Anyway. The part that I thought was funny was that the most sympathetic German character to their relationship in the whole movie was their landlord who was like, yeah, yeah whatever, it's no big deal. Oh, you're getting married? Okay, cool. Yeah, like, yeah he doesn't <laughs> have to leave as long as you're not subletting to him. You yeah. Know? Like, I, I don't see any wrong. And, and all the tenants are trying to get him to yeah. throw her out. And he's like, oh, dude, they seem very happy together. I don't yeah. see any reason to do that. Yeah. And also, um, Fassbinder does, again, you can see how he evokes Cirque in a certain way with uh, the visual language like the very ironic and kind of obvious, but a little bit on the nose, but it was good. Where when she's getting along with her worker buddies again, they've decided to forgive her for, um, you know, her marriage and so forth. And they want to get a raise and all of a sudden they've got this new woman and she's an immigrant. Poland or Ukraine? Po- or- yeah, Poland. I guess she's Polish. Uh, she comes over. And so she's this young woman who's Polish and they huddle together away from her because she's an immigrant and they don't want, oh, she's on a different pay scale. And we don't want to help her get a raise and blah, 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 blah. And so she goes, she doesn't say anything. And this yeah. shows again, she's flawed too. She's not like some progressive saint or whatever. She's definitely like the rest of them, which she always says. They're all, we're, you know, everybody's like good and bad, you know. But the thing is, is when they're talking at lunchtime, originally when they were shunning her, she would be sitting on the steps eating her lunch and they would go into that corner, her, her, her work buddies, and they would be talking and you would look up through the banisters, which are metal. And it was very evocative of Cirque's sort of True. jail imagery in which Jane Wyman's character's face was like bisected. And in this case, the body of the Brigitte was bisected and she would just sit on the stairs very sadly eating with looking at her through these jail-like bars. And then at the end, it's the Polish woman who's sitting up there. Right. So it's always somebody. I remember the policemen were also the other ones that were most sympathetic oh. to their oh, relationship. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. just have to say that because they get called for a, a noise complaint because she yeah. has some friends over and they're playing Arabic music like kind <laughs> of loudly. And so the police go up and they're like, oh, they're so horrible. And the police are like, 
I don't know, they're pretty fine most of the time. And they go up and they're like, can you turn it down? And she's like, yeah, no problem. And they're like, all right, great. Bye. Uh, So it's kind of funny. It's like in the movie, the actually the institutional powers are the ones that are sort of the least preoccupied with the relationship. Yeah. And I mean, not that it's always true, but if you think about it, it's just hassle for them. Yeah. (laughs) For nothing. And, And of course, then they were snickering behind the policeman's back the women who called them because they had long hair. Right. And so that's hippie. You know, right. that's, ooh. And so maybe that was showing also that the younger generation were not... That's true. ...not as biased in the same way. He makes the point of saying, you know, this older woman, she tells Ali at the beginning that, you know, oh, yeah, my father was in the Nazi party, and, yeah, and I was in the Nazi party. Everybody, Everybody was. was. Everybody had to be in it. And, and then she ended up marrying, and she was telling this in light of the fact that she married a Pole a Polish man, and she has a Polish last name then, and how her father couldn't get over her marrying a foreigner. And because, I mean, you know, Poles were seen as lesser. They were seen as lower humans. And so she said, yeah, but, you know, I always got along with him, and he got along with me, and we were fine. And so it kind of showed that she didn't absorb the rabid teachings of her childhood, which were quite, propaganda is quite prolific and really, really thrust down the throat. Yet at the same time, she still has the general biases and prejudices of her class and group. She sees Ali, she doesn't seem to have so much the racial prejudice, but when it comes to her interest, okay, let's leave the pole or maybe Ukrainian. Uh, let's leave her out because it's not to my benefit. Yeah, I'm finally back in. Yeah. Stay in. Yeah, exactly. I'm back. <laughs> They've accepted me back. You right. know, exactly. Well, okay. So then I guess the other thing that we have to touch on for sure is that child rearing the children in the in this movie, her adult children, they don't come in very much, but they suck. Uh, <laughs> they suck. She's she again, like a you know, sort of a supposedly super nice woman, uh, and she's always accommodating to them and like, oh yeah, I'll watch your kid, no problem. I'm always here for you. But then, yeah, they're just horrible little shits. Like, oh, terrible, all of them. Yeah, yeah. The one when she introduces him to Ali as her husband, he gets up and kicks her TV in. Yeah, there we go. The TV comes back again. <laughs> Sort of a <laughs> which is the opposite, you know, Perfect, because yeah. the TV is a good thing now. Right. <laughs> so the TV, the TV runs through all of them too. Yeah, and Fassbender acts in this movie. He's her daughter's Brother, son-in-law. Yeah, yeah. The, he's the her daughter. daughter's husband. Yeah, and he is a sheer asshole. Yeah, uh, I guess kind of there to contrast, sort of like he thinks he's so much better than these immigrants, but yeah. yet he's he's just a lazy, good-for-nothing husband who stays home from work because he doesn't want to work, accusing foreigners of not working. Yeah. And and, yeah. He, has a, and he has a supervisor who is non-German, and uh, he, oh, I, don't, I don't do what he says. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, sure you don't. Right. <laughs> so is there anything else we should call out? Mm, oh, yeah, there's the other thing that I wanted to touch on briefly which is that during the sort of like marital trouble third act episode Ali he starts to feel alienated because our main woman his wife what's her name again oh oh in the in the movie it's Emmy Emmy yeah Brigitte is her real name okay she's kind of getting in with her friends and so she's kind of like bossing him around and making him help people and stuff like that and And, oh she won't make him couscous And, and when the women come over, all of a sudden they're nice. And they're like, ooh, look at it. Oh, he's so handsome and all this yeah. stuff. And so now now he's like a proud possession. Yeah. I mean, and they had a really, this is, again, the connections, but it was still, it was fun. And so she's oh, yeah, he's so strong. And so she makes, she goes over and she makes him flex his muscle so that they can feel his muscles. And they're his all muscles. grabbing his arms and stuff. Yeah. And so you're like, yeah, this must be a very accurate representation of what it feels like to be... <laughs> 
him. And so the, all these things sort of drive him back to the bar where the bartender's like, you can come over anytime, I'll make you couscous. And, you and know, she has big breasts together. and blonde hair. Right. Um, but also big eye bags and circles under her yeah, eyes. Yeah, she's so. not, yeah. Um, but she makes him couscous and they sleep together. And, and so... Uh, at the end, when he and Emmy reconcile, he's kind of like, I'm sorry, I slept with another woman. And she's like, that doesn't matter. Like, I don't care as long as we're here with me. And so he reaffirms his love by being like, you're the only woman I want. And so that's all sweet. I actually liked it in the sense that I was like, well, maybe they shouldn't be monogamous and maybe they're okay with that. Perfect. Seems like a good solution to me. Uh, it didn't have to be like a huge betrayal, of which it would have perfectly legitimately been in other relationships. But... Well, well, she had taken it as a insult or a that hit some vulnerability that she had. But apparently, it seemed from the movie they had a very good sex life. Everything was just fine that way. He didn't ever seem to have any really, honestly, any problem with their age difference at all. And so I don't think that she felt that. She didn't have a vulnerability around it. So she just said, well, I understand I'm, I'm 25 years older than you and you might need something else. Right. And, and she was okay with that as long as, you know, you're with me and you're my husband and love me. Keep I'm, me company. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it was more than keeping her company. It's more of it's being an intimate partner. Sure, yeah. You know, she was, she was able to accept that. And then he was saying, well, no, you know, and whether that would be always true or not, it didn't seem like he went to the couscous woman for sex that he that, you know that he wanted that he was looking for anybody outside emmy for sex he was looking for couscous man yeah, he was some see again this is where there's something missing here because there's something about his identity something about wanting maybe it's just that he wanted to have more agency in the home and decision making power because he just went along with anything she wanted. That might have been it. And that's and then when he said he picked couscous as a thing, it was like, it's the kind of thing where people, married people or whatever, partners, argue about shit like, you didn't put your shoes in the closet. I don't want to put my shoes in the closet. God damn it, put your shoes in there. I'm going to trip over them. I'm going to break my neck. I don't want to do it because when I get up and my feet are cold, I want to have them right there. It's not about the shoes in the closet. Right. So they're arguing about couscous. And so that, that argument, his way of taking power or getting back at her or doing, rather than being angry or yelling or whatever, he just slept with somebody else. You know, I, I think that's what it is. And so even though he didn't tell her anything, it's a way of hurting her. And because of what they went through together, she, when he confessed it, she had already gotten kind of past it, if you will, even though she didn't know about it. Okay, so uh, I guess... Well, how should we wrap this up? Um, I think my favorite of the three is the original. Yeah, I agree. All that heaven allows. Yeah, I agree. But I think they're all very close together. Yeah. I would, you know, it's, it's, it's not a big gap between any of them. No, they're really all worth, very worth watching. I think Ali Fear Eats the Soul is probably the least accessible for people who just have not delved much outside Hollywood filmmaking styles because the, the form is a little different. There's also subtitles. Also, just the whole zeitgeist of it is very 70s German, very, and very queer. Oh, well, you mentioned the main actor was Fassbender's lover. So there right. again, we have the queer thread. Right, right. And it just, I don't know the whole thing. I, I think it's very interesting that so many queer, I, I think we already said this, so I won't say it again, because Cirque himself was not queer. Right. But it's like Judy Garland. Yeah. She wasn't queer, but the aesthetic really speaks to a certain, and not all queer people, obviously, to a certain swath of the community that it really, like, is iconic. You know, I just think it's yeah. very interesting. I will say maybe one thing 
uh, just going on All That Heaven Allows and not the rest of Cirque's movies. One thing that I think could be really appealing. So like I was I was thinking about the titles. Um, and I mean, Ali eats, Fear Eats the That's Soul. That's an awesome. It's a great title. <laughs> and it's, it's so Fassbenderian, you know. <laughs> totally. Love it. And it comes from this thing that his character says where he says, Fear Eats the Soul. And she's like, oh, is that an Arab proverb? And he's like, yeah. But then the other two, All That Heaven Allows and Far, Far From, from Heaven. Heaven. Yeah. So I thought that transition from the title is very much indicates the different tacts or bents yeah, of the movie true. and sort of how they end up. I think that the sort of slice of heaven or whatever that they achieve and all that heaven allows is pretty appealing to a queer sensibility. Oh, absolutely. And maybe maybe it's that alongside yeah. the sort of technicolor style and yeah. the lushness and stuff. Well, and the emotionality is what I was thinking. Because yeah. like, same with Judy Garland. The the vulnerability and emotionality of her, uh, you know, is... Is, is tremendous yeah and so it, it seems appealing and there's an escapism to it I yeah think. especially since everyone knows rock hudson was gay so i mean it adds especially uh older gay people who are so closeted and so reviled in so many ways to see this this beautiful gay man and in a romance and you know, could easily just pretend you're jane wyman why not right we all we all do <laughs> <laughs> We've all got a little of Jane Wyman in it. That's right, a little Jane Wyman in our hearts. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.